I can feel my blood pressure going up there, the excitement rising. <laughs> a bit of kick-ass music from the theme of the movie Kick-Ass. That was a pretty hot movie. Hey, do you like that, Claire? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I like the music. <laughs> <laughs> the music rocks, yeah. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And that voice you just heard, yes, that was Claire. And we're going to dig into the archive today, my personal archive, of some of my most treasured moments on Fuzzy Logic. We're going to bring you a story about, oh, there's an interview I did at Geoscience Australia on tsunamis. And in fact, we're going to be out of Geoscience Australia on the 19th of August. It'll be a very exciting day. It'll be, it's a great day. Oh, and they had, um, when I was there last time, we were there as Fuzzy, there was a a little simulated volcano, and this thing would spray water all over the kids. Did they make it with bicarbon vinegar? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I think. I think. It, <laughs> oh I, I think it made a look of delight on their faces. Uh, and oh, so, fun. on the theme of uh, vol- volcanoes, uh, I might bring you an interview with a volcanologist as well. We'll see how we go with time. And as I promised during uh, Irish Voice. Uh, I have the most amazing story of uh, a horse being attacked by European wasps. Yeah, they're pretty vicious insects, those wasps. Nasty. Yeah. Nasty, nasty stuff. And uh, so that's quite a remarkable story, one that stays in my mind. And that's uh, an interview I did with uh, Dr. Phil Spradbury a couple of years ago. He's the wasp control expert and studying ways to control wasp numbers. Big job, that one. Big job. Sure. Yeah, and you see them around the house. In fact... The queens are wandering around at the moment looking for places to make their nests, I think. Yes, fairly easily mistaken with bees too, unfortunately. So but they do have a they do have a characteristic kind of different flight shape pattern. and uh, quite different colour as well. Yeah. yeah. But that's the way they fly is a little bit different. Hmm. I think they're a bit slower. A bit slower and they just kinda of look there and go, duh <laughs> splat. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Easy pickings. <laughs> Easy pickings. Uh, and also, as I promised, we've got a moment on air when I was holding the oldest rock ever found on the planet. Fairly jealous. That is really. pretty amazing. That's uh, amazing, yeah. Yeah, he had these pieces over. He had it in his, in his pocket, in fact. I'm going, wow. So we'll bring you that. And uh, Dr. Fiona Wood, the Burns, the spray-on skin lady, who mm. was uh, an Australian living treasure. Wow, yes. Definitely worthy one, that one. Yeah, she was a remarkable person. And uh, another one which will be some high school kids, and you might be wondering why I would replay an interview with some high school kids, but you'll see when we get to that bit. But first we have some This Day in Science things, some remarkable things that happened on the, uh, is it the 29th? Yesterday is the 29th of July, and uh, on this day in 1929, uh, the first high-speed jet wind tunnel was completed in Langley Field, California, and they were able to reach a speed of about 600 miles per hour in this wind tunnel, and that meant that they could test aerofoils at that speed. Now, Dad, what's an aerofoil? <laughs> an aerofoil is like a wing shape, basically. Oh. Aeroplanes have them. They're pretty helpful in their uh, development of, of aeroplanes and other flying well, picture, machines. Well, picture this, right? You're on the runway, you're in a bit of kit that was built uh, by some guys back in the lab, and you're about to hit the throttle and take off, and you're going up. No one's ever tested this. <laughs> no, no one's ever been in the air in this thing before, and it's your first go, or you're the first person to, to give it a run, and yeah. so that's what the wind tunnel does. That's pretty cool, that one. But I did, I did on Fuzzy interview a lady from the University of Canberra, 
name escapes me at the moment, but she was using uh, doing wind modelling to see how the wind um, shapes itself over cities and hills and valleys and oh. things. And then, so like, if you put in a like a, a a big office block or something, you can create all sorts of weird wind disturbances down and, at ground level. And they have to be careful too with their um, architecture that the building, those really really tall buildings, mm. are not at danger of you know falling down with wind patterns and vibrations and, and things. And you see some of them are designed. Well, they have to be designed to bend and move yeah you know, within they the sway. Wind. yeah it's very creepy Appar- apparently <laughs> the, the um, building yeah apparently the empire state building sways that would not be a nice feeling i'm sure i don't know i've <laughs> never been very up to disconcerting the, i've never been up to the top of that one mm. um yes yeah, so that's wind tunnel uh there was also uh, a a sumerian astronomer in 3,123 BC saw a devastating asteroid, and they think about half a mile wide, and he wrote that down, wrote down his sightings on a clay tablet, which was later discovered. And um, they used computer recreation and his notes to recreate what would have happened with the um, asteroid, and they think it was... It was um, it was probably crashing into the Austrian Alps, leaving a swathe of cataclysmic damage. And wow. the, um, the astronomer who originally saw it described it as a white stone bowl approaching that vigorously swept along. Well, that's pretty remarkable. It, so, uh, yeah, it was a fair chunk. How big did you say it was? Yeah, they think about half a mile wide. Half a mile wide. Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. big that's a big lump. So, you know, when you see a shooting star, you know, go out and and look up at the night sky and you see a shooting star, Mm. the thing that you're seeing is is about the size of a speck of sand. Imagine how big a half a mile wide shooting star would be. It would really ruin your day, wouldn't (laughs) it? I think so. Seeing one of those coming (laughs) coming Mm. at you. All right, so let's kick off into our first uh, recorded classic moment of uh, my time with Fuzzy and... This is some three girls from Lake Jindera College. And I've got to tell you a bit of the backstory before I play this interview because it kind of gives you a feeling as to what it was like. And they were sitting outside the studio here before we went live and they were so nervous. They were so nervous and they're fidgeting and they're going, oh, we don't know what if we can do radio. And I'm thinking, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just play lots of music and fill it in. And then what you'll hear happening on this little bit of audio is... Well, I threw at them a This Day in Science question, and it was a pretty tough one. It was about the electrons whizzing around atoms, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened didn't, well, wasn't what I expected, but it was pretty good. So here's some Lake Ginandera College kids here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, I've got uh, This Day in Science, and these are people who were born on this day. That's the 28th of June. And Maria... Gopert Meyer, born uh, 1906, died 1972, was a German physicist who shared one half the 1963 Nobel Prize for Physics, and it was for their proposal of the Shell nuclear model. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, I can tell by your voices that you kind of know what that might be. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we did that. Yeah. You did. What What do you remember of it? 
Not much. As soon as you do the test, it's at the door. <laughs> okay. Now, we, we've actually talked about this on uh, on Fuzzy Logic before, and those shells, I think of them as being like uh, lifts in a building, right, or floors mm. in a building. Yeah, and the electrons can be sitting on the first floor or the second floor, but not usually anywhere in between. Is that kind of how you think of it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're sort of all floating around in a cloud, and they're actually randomly moving around the nucleus. Um However, they do tend to sort of, in pairs, stay yeah. in certain regions yeah. um, called the subshells. Yeah. And, yeah, that's how they're sort of organised in, in the, each of these cell, shells. So you've got these major shells, and yeah. then within those shells, um, separate subshells where the electrons lie. Ah, cool. Actually, I didn't know that. But that was a model proposed after the shell model, wasn't oh, it? Oh, was it? Yeah. It's the so the shell model, model which, one was, which one was the shell model? Was that the one... We have it in the rings with like two and then eight in the next one and then eight in the next yeah, one. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then there was a, a model, the quantum mechanical model proposed after that. That's right. Bohr's model. That was after Bohr's. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the subshells, no. the SMP subshells and the F and the uh, yes, this was uh, Lake Ginandera College school kids there. Now, can you imagine how I felt like. They knew what they were talking about. Ding, that was, ding. <laughs> that was no trivial topic. Yeah. And when they came off air, they were on a buzz, you know, wow, look. And so I feel really good about that. Now, I've interviewed on Fuzzies some world-class top scientists, and that one stands out for me. They were just three college girls, but look at what they did. Good on you, girls. And uh, so we've got another quick story uh, from the paper today. Claire, what is it? Yeah, so looking in the news today, there's a little snippet here that says, Pop comes to a stop. And apparently your mother was right. This pop music has become louder and less original over the years. Um, But that's apparently what a computer analysis of nearly half a million songs recorded between 1955 and 2010 and reported in Nature Scientific Reports. And they said that they have been a- we've been able to show how the global loudness level of music recordings has consistently increased over the years. Um, and similarly, the team who did the research found the diversity of chords and melodies has consistently diminished in the last 50 years. How depressing. They also said that much of the gathered evidence points towards an important degree of conventionalism in the sense of blockage or no evolution in in the creation and production of contemporary Western popular music. Wow. Bit sad. Now, dear listener, (laughs) what you don't know is that Claire here is a high-grade musician in her own right, has several diplomas, and in fact, we'll be doing a concert uh, with a harp player. She plays the recorder and flute. And uh, so, Claire, what would be the definition of complexity in music to you? I mean, what would make a piece of music more complicated than another? Well, I think there's lots of things about music that draw, you know, appeal to different people. And I think it can be related to the rhythm or the beat at the bottom of a piece of music that might be particularly attractive. Or it could be a really uh, complex melody or, and in the case of ABBA, this is, this is particularly notable, um, very complex harmony and chord progressions because the men in ABBA who wrote their songs were classically trained musicians. So they actually had a very good understanding of chordal progressions and complicated melodies and things like counterpoint in their harmony. And without realising, you might not realise when you listen to a piece of music, but that's actually very appealing to the human ear and and that's 
I, you know, I'm not sure, but that's what I think. Part of the reason why groups such as ABBA was so popular. But if you listen to some some pop music now, if you just take the melody, it only moves around one or two or three notes. It really doesn't have a lot of range, and it can be quite boring. So they need to have a strong beat and a big bass line underneath to actually make it appealing. Now, is that because you are classically trained yourself? That um, I notice, or, that or that you notice, or because you have an expectation. Like if you if you weren't classically trained and you just went and wanted to hear like oomph, oomph, oomph. well, it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy that sort of music as well. And I think it has a time and a place. Do I, I maybe that just means that I you know you notice a bit more if you really think about it or pick apart you know a piece of music. Yeah. Well, one one group stands out, and you mentioned harmonies, like. Uh, beach singing you know surfing and playing on the on the sand and, mm-hmm. and hanging around with the beach babes i am of course talking about the beach boys <laughs> and they had very complex quite subtle melodies yes. it's really good stuff when you when you break that apart I mean, and that's often very you know appealing without even instinctively you were drawn to that kind of music it plays on all of our you know needs as far as you know listening to music do you, do you think it would be different if we were from a different culture so if we were say from the indian subcontinent that you know our perception of of harmonies is different to them quite probably i mean what we're used to hearing is is certainly very different and if you came from a culture that has a very different sound and they certainly do you know perhaps i don't know perhaps that would yeah make a make a difference to what you i suppose what you're used to listening to yeah all right, so we've got a piece of music now coming up here on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. My name is Rod, and sharing the joys with me in the studio today is Claire. And when we come back, we're going to do another classic moment from Fuzzy Logic, and this one will be, let's bring you the rock interview, because that one rocks. What do we got, Claire? Well, if you're wanting to hear some good harmony and good music writing, I've brought you a song from the musical Brand New Day, which you might have seen. And this track is called Listen to the News, sung by Ernie Dingo, and fantastic harmony and a strong message. And on 2XX Fuzzy Logic, you were listening to Listen to the News from the musical Brand New Day, sung by Ernie Dingo and Friends. And what a powerful song. I don't know about you, but that really gets in my bones, that one. It is very cool stuff and uh, good um, giving me discussion about cultural um, perspectives and so on. And it's a great movie too, very positive movie about uh, Indigenous people in Australia. Yeah, and good... Taking the mickey, I think, from... <laughs> Didn't take it to yourself too seriously. Yeah, absolutely. All right, now speaking of things that rock, uh, here's an interview now that I did with Dr Ian Williams back in 2009. And as I promised, he's talking about the oldest rock ever found on the planet here on 2XX, Fuzzy Logic. Oh, now, uh, uh, this is a good point at which to uh, pick up a couple of rocks that uh, Ian has very kindly brought in. And I've got to tell you, this is pretty amazing. I'm holding two rocks they look well one looks like a uh, type of basalt probably a very fine crystal thing with uh, it's black with uh, white stripes through it it's actually a remelted granite it's a remelted granite and it's got little bits of quartz in it i can see that i'm not a geologist by the way but uh what have i got here in what you're holding in your hand at the moment is the oldest rock we've ever found on earth and that was one of the things that shrimp identified quite a number of years ago, around about 1992, I think, yes. That's 
really quite amazing. I cannot tell you what it, it feels like to hold the oldest thing on the planet. And how old is that oldest thing? Yeah. That rock's just over 4 billion years. It's actually the first rock that was ever found that's over 4 billion years old. The Earth is only 4.5 billion years old. So do you know much about the history of this rock? Where, how would it have... I mean prior to you picking it up obviously I mean in, in the earth what, how did it yeah, get to we, be? we can tell a little bit about it um, that's one of the jobs we do with shrimp is, is we don't just measure how old things are we look at their history and we can do that because the crystals that we extract from the rock grow layer by layer through time and even though they're very small the shrimp allows us to get into the layers the crystals we're looking at are about the size of a grain of salt oh ok now that's a good time to pick up the other I'll hold up to the microphone I've got a small disc, it's about the size of a 10 cent piece and on it there's a little matrix of tiny, tiny specks there, about as big as a grain of salt probably, possibly even smaller. And these are crystals of zircon. They're crystals of zircon. Uh, but not the kind that you wear on your finger with ladies' jewellery. Cubic zirconia. Is no. that the same element, zirconia? They've both got zirconium and oxygen, but yeah. zircon has silicon as well. Okay. So what, what, what's this sample I've got in front of me then? Well, what you're holding in your hand actually is possibly the oldest material actually ever found on the Earth's surface, and it's different from a rock. You see, what happens with rocks is rocks break down. Rocks aren't permanent things. If you look at soil, it's just disaggregated rock. So what you're holding in your, in your hand is old soil that was incorporated in a much younger rock, and that old soil contains the oldest material we have ever found on Earth's surface. It was formed within 100 million years of the Earth forming as a planet. And they're zircon crystals. Zircons are tough little beggars. They use zircon crystals to make bricks to line blast furnaces because they survive. Ah, so what would the... 100 million years after the formation of the planet, yep. as, as, a, as a discrete entity... As a discrete entity, yeah. some rocks formed on the Earth's surface or near to the Earth's surface grew zircon crystals and you're holding them in your hand. That, that, that is quite a remarkable thing. This is uh, really, yeah, blows me away. What would the planet have been like? Not a friendly place. Well, that's the strange thing. Zircon crystals only grow in rocks which are very similar to the ones that make up the Brindabellas. So the planet was thought to be a very unfriendly place very early in its history, but we know within 100 million years of it forming, there was enough water on the Earth's surface to actually generate rocks which are very similar to the ones that we know about and are familiar with today. Look at the walls of Parliament House, they're made of granite. The grains that you're holding in your hand, they come from granite. It needs water. It needs free water, so... We can guess from the fact that you've got those crystals in your hand that there was probably an ocean on the Earth within 100 million years of its first forming. It was a really unexpected discovery. That's just... Yeah, I'm gobsmacked. That's really amazing. So the water is obviously... You're telling us is a key component in the creation of the crystals. How do these, how do these compare with the age of things that come in through, uh, from space, you know, into meteorites? Meteorites, most of the meteorites we see are either remnants of material from the solar system that never formed a planet or remnants of material from the solar system that were once in a planet which then got broken up. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at some meteorites, they're full of iron, nickel iron. Now nickel iron separates out in the formation of a planet when it gets large enough to differentiate. It's called differentiation. Earth has differentiated. Earth has a nickel iron centre 
around that solid center there is liquid nickel ion that's moving move a conducting uh, material and you generate a magnetic field hence we have a magnetic field so some uh, one of the early planets probably in the vicinity of the current asteroid belt was broken up and that represents some of the meteorites they as far as we can tell are very very little younger than the solar system itself so when you date meteorites 4,556 million years old wow that's just amazing now I have a third rock here which you've been kind enough to bring in this one uh, looks a bit like meatloaf actually yes thank you thank you maybe your lava bread perhaps <laughs> uh, it's it's much chunkier it's got uh, large fractures in it and something looks like some sort of quartz mixed with all sorts of stuff it's in layers I guess and I think I can see a rusty bit on the surface of that iron or something that's iron staining and it's a dead giveaway that it's Australian Yay. That comes from Western Australia, and that is the rock from which those very old crystals were extracted. So that rock at the moment, is, it's called the Jack Hills Conglomerate. It was a pebble bed, and 3,400 million years ago, it was solidified and cooked up, but still residing inside it are these tiny little zircon crystals, which were over 1,000 million years older than the rock you're holding. And that gives it this sort of meatloaf appearance. So it's a pebble bed that's been crushed and, and reformed. Crushed and so re-welded. So it's like an aggregate, but then heated again, I presume. That's right. Now, which, which part of West Australia is that it? That comes from Jack Hills, which is just uh, north of Mikathara. Wow. Wow. It's a real discovery. That rock is now the subject of major international research efforts. It contains really the only evidence we have from the very earliest part of the Earth's crust. It's uh, now, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at uh, ancient uh, human artifacts. So I've even been to the city of David, which may be the oldest city on the planet. And then, you know, but even that's only a few thousand years old. And then you look at something like this and you just say, this goes right back to the formation of the solar system just about, or just after. Well, the formation of the planet on the Earth, I should say. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a little carried away there. Um, well, now, the solar system, that's fine. Yeah, it's, it's further back than my brain can comprehend, so put that way. G'day, I'm Dr. Carl Klinitsky. Now, you might know me from TV shows like Quantum, Sunrise, Sleep Geeks, radio shows like Triple J, Up All Night on the BBC, books like Science is Golden, Never Mind the Bullocks, Dinosaurs Aren't Dead, and of course, I recommend that you get your science from me, but when you can't, or in addition, tune into the fabulous Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM, Sundays, 11.30. Remember, the universe depends on it. That's right, the universe depends on it. Listen to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show or the world. In fact, the whole universe will be in deep, deep doo-doos. <laughs> Good thing because that's where you are right now with me, Rod, and Claire. And now, speaking of uh, the planet, and can you imagine falling from space into the planet, Claire? No, I can't. And reading this article in today's paper is boggling my mind. This 43-year-old Austrian guy, he's a skydiver. His name's Felix Baug... Oh, I can't even say Baumgartner. Baumgartner, I think. Yeah. Uh, he's made his second stratospheric leap, this time from more than 29 kilometres above the Earth, which is nearly three times higher than cruising jetliners. He landed safely near Roswell in New Mexico. So he was an alien coming to Earth? No, I'm sure some people in New Mexico might have thought so. 
And he reached a top speed of about 862 kilometres an hour. He was booking. <laughs> he was booking. Yeah, the radars didn't like him very much. Apparently, it was a personal best, and he's aiming for a record-breaking... Who He's going to aim in another month for a record-breaking jump from 37 kilometres. So he went from 29 kilometres this time, which is three times higher than a jetliner, and now he wants to go almost 10 kilometres higher than that. He said he hopes to go supersonic, breaking the speed of sound using just his body. And I'm sorry... Maybe I'm a bit cynical, but it just sounds a little comical to me. <laughs> oh. It's a bit like an Iron Man. I wonder if I'll have to I look up and see what, the, what suit he was wearing because he probably well, looks says, a bit like Iron Man. I can tell you. It says he was in an enclosed capsule, which was lifted by a giant helium balloon, and he was wearing a full-pressure suit, which was equipped with parachutes and an oxygen supply because there's virtually no atmosphere, atmosphere that far up. Wow. What a, a madman. He said it felt completely different at 90,000 feet. There is no control when you exit the capsule. There is no way to get stable. He was in free fall for an estimated three minutes and 48 seconds before opening his parachutes. Now there's a thrill seeker. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is just awesome. Now, dear oh, listener, go. No, thanks. Uh, go, go, <laughs> go, go on to YouTube and look up Joe Kittinger. That's K-I-T-T-I-N-G-E-R, Joe Kittinger. He was the first person to ever attempt something like this back in the late 60s, I think it was. Do you mean skydiving or skydiving ridiculous heights? Ridiculous heights skydiving. Mm. He also went up in a helium balloon. Thirty. Um, he went up to uh, 30,000 feet or no, 90,000 Something feet. ridiculous. 90,000 feet, I think it was. Well, this guy said 30, meters. it felt completely different at 90,000 feet, so... Yeah, uh, yeah. So he was the first person to try this kind of stuff, and he had a space suit on. And if you look at this YouTube video, it right, burns off his body. No, okay. <laughs> no, no. He actually made it, but in it fact, suctions off. His <laughs> face flaps off. <laughs> his skin peels back. What, like a dog sticking his face oh, out? Can of you imagine? You've seen window. real sky, like normal skydiving footage. Their faces look like they're going to peel off their skulls. Imagine that. He must have had a helmet or something. No, no, he's wearing a space suit. A complete space suit. Yeah, and I think he did three jumps. In one of them, he had a little hole in the glove of his hand. Oh. And uh, the pressure kind of started to, uh, you know, seep out through his hand, and he actually went unconscious, but his his hand swelled up and blocked the hole, I think, and he... uh, uh, his shoot parachute automatically opened. But anyway, look at this YouTube video because what you can see, he's so far up that the sky is black all around him. And below That's him scary. is this little blue globe. Well, I mean, they're, bl- they're not little. I mean, there's still a huge, vast blue shape below him. But, but you can see it. He's in the blackness of space. Wow. Yes. And below him, there's little white puffs of cloud. And near the top of the cumulonimbus, whatever they are, those high, <laughs> high altitude clouds, right? And then, so he's got like a little basket or something, and there's a camera attached in the basket looking down, and I think there's one on his helmet as well. And then he just steps out. He just steps How could, honestly. out. And then you just see his body just go, disappears At what away point him. do you start floating? There must be still, obviously there's still gra- um, gravity. Ah, uh, yes. Because I don't know much about what point gravity disappears. He's not going to be able to go much further, surely. You float off to the moon in my accident. <laughs> bit embarrassing. Uh, that's actually uh, a complicated question you raised there, Claire. <laughs> uh, and a satellite that's orbiting the Earth is actually falling, but it happens to be falling at just the right speed so that it always maintains the same distance from the Earth because it's also going around the Earth. So this guy, 
this guy's falling straight down. He has no... He's not moving around, around the planet. He's just falling straight down. So if he had a little jet pack, theoretically, he could just sit around with the satellites. He Is that right? He would have to go... Oh, he would have to go higher and, and get quite a bit of velocity going around because... You've got to get a fair speed up. So had a big jet pack. A big jet pack. (laughs) And, yeah. Wow. No thanks. I think I'll keep my feet firmly on the ground. I've I've got to look up and see whether there's a a video of this guy, Baumgarten. Now, speaking of things in space and with a Canberra connection here, and we had Glenn Nagel, in fact, on Fuzzy Logic a couple of weeks ago. G'day, Glenn, and he's from the Tidminbilla tracking station. In fact, he's quoted in this story here. And it's about the Curiosity mission to Mars and the seven minutes of terror, as they call it. So this thing, this, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, surveyor, the Curiosity craft is going to bumble its way, bumble, it's trundle its way across the surface of Mars looking for... You're about like, like the little original Mars Pathfinder thing? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Except this one's as big as a combi van. Oh, upgrade. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Executive model. Yeah, this has got bikes in it. <laughs> and uh, so... Um, Air conditioning and surround sound. Yeah. Yep. And they're going to land this thing on Mars and... It's going to a place called the one. Oh, it's a 150-kilometer-wide crater named after the Australian amateur astronomer Walter Gale, who discovered seven comets and was also a keen observer of Mars and Jupiter. Mm. And the seven minutes of terror is when they lose contact with this thing because actually, no, it's seven minutes for the signal from the Curiosity craft to get back to Earth. So we don't know for seven minutes whether it actually is going to make it to the to the to the ground on on Earth on it's Mars. It's going to be some very sweaty palms. Yes, and years, yeah, exactly right. Years, years of work and uh, a lot riding on. Anyway, let's uh, let's go to a track now. We've got a bit of classic Beatles here on Fuzzy Logic. What have we got, Claire? We're going to play Revolution, and everybody who's a Beatles fan will know that the fast version of Revolution is so much better than the slower version. Yeah, absolutely. So, this one really rocks. Here it is for you to rock out on a Sunday morning. Actually, that's uh, Jimi Hendrix. We'll do, the, we'll do the Beatles one next. <laughs> Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix, and we're bopping around the studio here because that is such cool music, that guy really rocked. And actually, it's probably quite complex music in its own right. Claire, what do you reckon? Yeah, it was a bit of a genius, that man. <laughs> His uh, ability to play the guitar and keep that melody going instead of just mashing chords. Uh, first, here is another moment of classic fuzzy from our archives, and this is Dr Fiona Wood, the Australian living treasure burn specialist. And what a remarkable lady here on Fuzzy Logic. So our special guest today is Dr. Fiona Wood, a, a, an Australian living treasure. That's interesting. What's an Australian living treasure? <laughs> well, I think the emphasis is on living, so I'm still alive and kicking. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, li- the living is good. 
And uh, you are the director of the West Australian Burns Service and you are renowned for your technique of spray-on skin to treat burns victims. Now, yes, I guess that's just one of the things we do, but we, yeah, we treat burns uh, patients in the whole of them uh, in a very holistic fashion. Yes, but... Ah, so it's more than just the uh, injury itself, it's, it's the whole patient. Absolutely. And burns injury is very interesting in that it doesn't take a, a, a much, one, to cause quite significant damage, and two, that even very small burns will have an impact on the rest of you, wow. uh, whether it be from a psychological point of view or from a physical and functional point of view. So it has huge ramifications on your immune system, your ability to move and walk, and the pain c control obviously has a, a big is a big part of that. You know, so it's actually quite a, uh, it's fascinating from my perspective how such a small injury can have such profound ramifications. Mm, yes, well we're going into a bit more detail about that because I know from uh, my friend's experience. Now, let's just go back to the start of the event. So here they are out in the horse paddock and the flame front is coming through and it's a pretty horrific scene. What, what's going on in the, in the body as during the event itself? Well, the, the amount, the extent of damage is directly related to the energy. You know, sort of, if it's high temperature uh, for a long time, it's going to cause a lot more damage than a lower temperature for a shorter time. So the the actual physics of it matter. For example, when someone will ring me, uh, one of my junior doctors will ring and say, "This is an eight-year-old child who has uh, taken out uh, a cup of hot noodles from a microwave." Then I know the picture profile of the fluid in that cup is higher than a, a, a cup that's got two sugars and milk in it from a cup of tea. Yeah, so the actual temperature profile matters. And then uh, what matters is what you do after that. Remove the clothes, cool the burn. And I, I was in um, one of the, in a science talk recently uh, for the high school kids, and we were trying to work out how to get the sort of concept of cooling off uh, over. and certainly when you blanch vegetables on a daily basis you cool them down after you've cooked them they stay crisp because you've reduced the heat again it's the physics so once the the sort of heat has passed and you remove the burning agent stop drop roll that sort of thing and put out to extinguish the flames or to remove the clothes to remove the chemical burn off uh, agent off you or the hot clothes for the skull then you cool the, the, the burn area. And there's a lot of very good science come out of New South Wales and Queensland, actually, where if you cool the burn for 20 minutes within the first hour of injury, particularly in a skull, you can reduce that burn by 80%, well, the extent of the damage. So, so the, the first aid is, is hugely, hugely important. Cool, clean running water for 20 minutes and we, no ice. No ice? <laughs> ice? Ice may make you feel good because it gets a bit numb, but cold damage on top of heat damage is really bad news because it just confounds the issue and extends the damage. Ah, yes. Well, I so recently... that's what we need in the first place. You need to get rid of the get get away from the source, reduce the the burning agent, and then cool cool the burn. And then we say warm. We don't want people to be hypothermic from this cool running water. So especially children. So put a blanket around them and sort of cool the burn area. 
Ah, okay. Now, I know what you mean by a coal burn because every year I go and have sunspots burn off me with liquid nitrogen, but that's yeah. obviously pretty extreme. So just just want to talk a little bit about more the cooling part here. Um, is that because you're dampening the, the body's physiological reaction to the burn or is it because you're actually removing heat from the, from the skin and from the subcutaneous fat? I think it's a combination of both. One is you, you, the, uh, the transfer of heat is reversed. You're sort of you're dissipating that, that energy and getting it away so it doesn't uh, cause an ongoing damage. And the second thing is the, the cellular, at the cellular level, there becomes a point when you can't salvage a cell. That they go through the, the tissue destruction where the cell wall is completely destroyed or the, uh, the proteins are destroyed because the temperature is so high and the energy associated is so high. But around that area is, a, is a, the body's response and there's a big area that the cells are in kind of limbo, you know. Oh, was that bad enough for us to turn up our toes or can we carry on? And so you can influence the programs involved in programmed cell death in apoptosis by reducing the, the heat. So there's been a, that's the good science that's certainly come out of Queensland is that by, if you actually look at the cellular response to the cooling, you will see that you change the, uh, the pathways, the cellular pathways involved in programmed cell death. Uh-huh. So you will actually literally save those cells. Those cells are just sitting on the fence, you'll push them to the right side of the fence. <laughs> Yes, and that was uh, Dr. Fiona Wood and myself having a conversation a little while ago. She's the Burns lady and, as I said, quite a remarkable woman. In fact, she subsequently did uh, an interview, a talk out at the ANU, and there wasn't a person in the room who wasn't blown away by her energy and her talent and her commitment. Pretty fantastic. Yeah, terrific stuff. Well, we're going to play you, play you the actual revolution now from the Beatles. And when we come back, we'll hear that story about the European wasp and the horse. So stick around for that. And as promised now, let's have our little story from Dr. Phil Spradbury. Now, Phil is the wasp control expert in the ACT, the European wasp, and he's also studying ways in which they can control wasps by looking for pheromones in their nesting material. Because they're a bloody pest, those wasps. They get inside your beer, they get inside your dog food, they sit on your sandwich, and you don't want to swallow one. Here's Phil. And Phil, you you had a story about um, a horse being killed by wasps. Did you say it was in the Snowy Mountains? Yes, it's, it's, it's not quite a horror story, but it's very, very close to it. Um, I think I'll introduce this little story by, by just reminding people of a, a program that used to be on TV, and you can get the DVD of it, called A River Somewhere. I remember it well. Very nicely filmed um, series with Rob Sitch and Tom Gleisner, now on DVD. <laughs> I'm not promoting it. <laughs> Available in the foyer. <laughs> yes. But look, these, these guys uh, travelled all over the world, I think, at the end of the day, uh, going fly fishing, weren't yes. they? They were fishing. That's fly right. Fishing. Yeah. Well, when they did the, the, the program they did on the snowy mountains in the Victorian snowies, uh, they went on horseback 
and if people remember the episode they'll remember Rob Sitch was on a nice white horse well this is the story of what happened to that horse two weeks after they filmed and the story comes from the owner of the horse Philip Maguire Phil Maguire mm-hmm. I'll just read it to you it's from, from an email and it's somewhat edited uh, and this is in the Victorian Alps okay in May it was May 1998 we were camped out at our mustering hut McNamara's at Dinner Plain on the southern Bogong High Plains we had breakfast and I settled up my Arab gelding Rashi that's its name, and set out for a day's mustering down along Kabungra River. We'd been in the same area a couple of weeks before with the a River Somewhere crew filming a TV episode, and Rob Sitch had ridden Rusty, Rusty, Rashi, and he was soon to appear on television. We started out about 6-8am. Down a steep descent, uh, tracking cattle through the forested sides, and once on the river we tracked them upstream until we reached a point just below Flowbag. I decided to stop and have some lunch by the river. It was a cold, cloudy day. There was a severe drought and no rain was on the horizon. I was about to eat my sandwiches when I saw the horse, which had been left grey, stomp the ground rather hard and I thought he'd stepped on an ant's nest, so I walked over to move him on a few metres. As I got to him, a black cloud appeared out of the ground and we were covered with stinging insects. I couldn't make out what they were, but they were flying, so I assumed they were bees. I was being stung around the ears and neck and chest and I wasn't able to mount, and so I got away as I rapped rashly on the rump and screamed, Get, get going! It was like a scene from a horror movie. I then crashed my way through the tea tree onto the riverbank, leapt into the water and submerged myself. When I came up I was still being attacked, so I went under again and stayed there as long as I could. The next time I surfaced, the assailants were gone. I climbed out of the river, but there was no sign of Rashi, he was gone, and I walked slowly upstream and had gone a hundred metres or so when I was attacked again by a dozen or so wasps, which I managed to beat off with a tea tree branch. I was calling out to Ron in case he wasn't far away, then I heard the sound of cantering hooves behind me, and I looked, turned round, and it was Rashi coming after me. He saw me and stopped, and I breathed a sigh of relief. His bit was hanging, and I realised he had stepped on the reins, and I went to put the bit back in place, but his teeth were firmly closed. I managed to prise them open, but I was feeling alarmed, and not at all that well myself. I mounted and tried to get him going up the hill, but it seemed he'd spent his energy coming back to me. I dismounted and tried to lead him out, but he took two steps and collapsed. He couldn't breathe. I was devastated. I'd bred him sixteen years before, and I loved him. We'd been through thick and thin together, and he'd come back to me with his last bit of strength, and he died of anaphylaxis. Actually, he probably died of, uh, of uh, blockage of the, of the pulmonary system, you know. They'd stung him right up in his nostrils, and his airway was closed. So that's a rather sad story, wow. written from the man who, whose horse it was, and who saw it all and was part of the scene. But it shows you what can happen, you know, in, in the bush with, with things such as, you know, an introduced pest like European wasp. Lots of cases of animals being killed, but so far in Australia, not one single human death has been re- officially reported due to European wasp. That's which is a bit amazing. That's an amazing story. It is an amazing story yeah. and a very sad one. And those who remember that uh, that TV series, you know, would would be you know rather sad to realise that the horse that featured in that uh, is no longer. And, and the manner of its death, of course. Yeah, uh, it's pretty. A lot, amazing. a lot of wasp nests up there in the snowies. Yeah. That's amazing, and the uh, the fact that it can bring down an animal of that size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. Well, the swelling, if, see, if it stung it all around the nostrils, the swelling would just block all the air passages. Yeah. And that's what happens with humans as well. I mean, if you get a sting in the mouth, that's the most dangerous place, because the swelling can block the air passage. The, the, it's the, a the very aggressive strategy on by the wasps. <coughs> not well, it's just that they sting, and if they happen to sting inside the, the mouth, then that swells like anywhere else on your body, but it's a much more uh, dangerous position, a different yeah. Place. 
Yes, and that's uh, Dr. Phil Spreadry, the wasp control expert here in the ACT. And uh, what a remarkable, quite a, a really sad story that, it's isn't really it? It's really awful. Yeah. And devastating. And and it just shows how dangerous these things can be, even to... I mean, a horse is such a big animal. Yeah. It's, it's just shocking. To bring down an animal that size is, is quite, um, yeah, it's quite something, which is why when we sit at the back drinking our beer, I have a fly swat handy. <laughs> and they try and get into our cheese and they swap... They, they hover around our beer. I swat the little so-and-sos. Well, I think it's really important that people, you know, are cautious of these. I remember being at a, at a barbecue with you know, lots of young children around, and it was summer, and there was a European, you know, a little child had a can of soft drink, which is another story altogether, why a small child has a can of soft drink. But anyway, this European wasp was buzzing around, you know, around the rim of the soft drink because of all the sugar and stopping and landing on it, and I, and um, we told the mother of the child because we're thinking that child drinks and ends up with a European wasp in its mouth. You know, same story as with the horse. That's just very dangerous. But people aren't aware that they're much more dangerous than you know just a common bee or. And an apparently, ant. if you go near a nest and you kill one, they release aggressive uh, some sort of pheromone and makes and it brings the other ones on. Yeah. But we found, uh, <laughs> we nuked some of them. We found a nest. I shouldn't really um, endorse this on radio. Well, they do say that you're supposed to try and get rid of them. Yeah. They don't, yeah. Well, this was a fairly easy to find nest. It was about the size of a 20 cent piece, just Perhaps a you should explain what the nests look like because they're not like a beehive. Yeah. You imagine Winnie the Pooh stuck on a tree. <laughs> they're, they're quite different and quite yeah. hard to spot, actually. They vary a bit. Well, the, the nest, we found a couple of them, and they're just a hole in the ground, just a smooth hole. There's no soil around. There's no mound. There's no other sign that the uh, there's a wasp nest there. And when you stood back, you could see them coming out of the hole. Uh, so, uh, speaking of food, though, Claire, uh, what happens if we uh, restrict our calorie intake? Can we live for longer? Because we'll want to live for longer. Yes. Well, this this guy, his name was Roy Walford, and he was a scientist born on the 29th of June in 1924. Uh, he was an American pathologist and gerontologist who pioneered and wrote books on the idea of restricting food intake to extend lifespan. So we know a lot more about in this day. He actually practiced the concept rigorously himself with a diet limited to 1,600 calories per day, which is quite low for a man, and he hoped to reach the age of 120. It's possibly a little optimistic. <laughs> but um, he, he found that mice with a restricted calorie intake of about 40% nearly doubled their lifespan. Um, but... Sadly, he was also one of eight people who lived from 1991 in a biosphere 2, which was an experiment to see if humans could live for two years in the sealed, self-contained environment. And probably because of this, he actually died at the tender age of 79 uh, with, of complications from Lou Gehrig's disease, perhaps a result of low oxygen, high nitrous oxide levels in the biosphere, causing loss of brain cells. So who knows what would have happened to him. Maybe he would still be alive. 
Yeah, if he hadn't, he, well, yeah, if he well, had. That, that biosphere <laughs> two thing, that was where they put all these people in this little sealed building. I think there were seven of them, did you say? Uh, he said eight, yes. Eight of them. Eight. Uh, to see whether they could live in a perfectly sealed environment. So they grew their own crops, which they ate. They recycled their own sewage. And apparently you know, not. A bit like goldfish in a bowl with no pump. <laughs> I don't know how uh, well it's understood whether the nitrous oxide levels were implicated in his Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, Claire, do you dream vividly? At times I do, yes, but I often find difficult to remember my dreams and often try find, struggle to figure out how they relate to your daily life. All right, well, here's a heads up on some exciting stuff we have coming up on Fuzzy Logic and in the Canberra Times tomorrow. Thanks to Evelyn, who sent us a question to askfuzzy at zoho.com. She said, why do we dream? I went, well, there's lots of rubbish science, pseudoscience out there about that. You know, like a white horse means that you're lusting after whatever. Dreamology, isn't it? Oh, yes, there's so much bumpkin. Anyway, I found a person who is doing genuine science on the topic of dreaming. And uh, this afternoon, I'm going to be pre-recording an interview with uh, Dr. Glenn Billsborough, uh, who's been studying that. And he's a Freudian psychoanalyst. Mm, that'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. We had a really fascinating conversation, he and I, the other day. And um, looking forward to bringing you to that. We'll probably bring you the recording next weekend on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. And with that, it's time to say goodbye from us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Plenty more coming up here on Fuzzy Logic. Catch you later.